The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Uh, it is that time of year, at least here in Massachusetts, there actually seems to be a little bit of spring in the air, which is kind of rare for March around here. We're looking at 65 degrees this weekend, and you know me and the weather. I'm super excited about that, although ironically, I will be on a ski slope, hopefully with some good snow up in Maine. We'll see. But much more importantly, for those of you who are tuning in, many of you are probably um, if you haven't gotten decisions or if your, your child hasn't gotten decisions, you're waiting anxiously for the remaining decisions. Um, many of you are probably looking at the different options and weighing your choices, uh, and you may be wondering, gee, can we get more money than we've been offered? And so today, one of the things we're going to be talking about is we're doing part two of our segments on asking for more money, and today we're going to be talking about scholarship negotiations. And then we're also going to be answering the listener questions you guys have been sending us uh, related to admissions. So we'll be talking about that a little bit later. But first, I'm excited to welcome a guest today who is, if you're not in these in this uh, situation right now, she has she's currently where you are if you're waiting for decisions um, or trying to decide amongst the options. Uh, her daughter is doing that. She's been there before. Her older son is currently in college, and she will be there again because her youngest is just a freshman in high school. Welcome, Rita. Thank you. Nice to be here. Absolutely. We're excited. So just to give our readers a little bit of background, I know that you um, live in California. Your son is a freshman uh, right now at uh, Cal Poly in San Luis, and your daughter, Savannah, is, is she still waiting on all her decisions, or are they all in at this point? She actually has one more decision, which should be coming in today, actually, um, wow. and she's heard from the other, she applied to five other colleges, and she's heard from those, so we are very much in the midst of uh, trying to figure that out. Got it. Okay. Well, so let's kind of go back to the beginning uh, a little bit. And I guess my first question for you is, when did you start talking about the financial piece in terms of paying for college with your kids? I'm guessing you and your husband probably talked about it a few times, not involving the kids. But when did you start talking to your kids about it? I would say the early conversations happened as soon as they were in high school, um, at least with regard to money. But with our eldest, who's 19, the one at Cal Poly, probably junior year was when the rubber started hitting the road and 
as he started looking at colleges, we started really kind of batting around some numbers and talking to him about, you know, who's going to pay for this, um, what's going to be his part, what's going to be our part. And a lot of that also came out while we were doing the college visits, which we did start his junior year as well. Got it. Got it. So did, did those conversations and really starting to look at sticker prices and think about, wow, exactly what you just said, who's going to pay for this? And, yeah. you know, how is that going to work? Did that ultimately have an impact on where, why it applied to college and, and now where um, your daughter Savannah has applied to college? We thought actually that would have a much bigger impact initially, um, but the more we researched it, we started to realize that a lot of colleges with even very high price tags had, you know, a meets need uh, package mm-hmm. or they might have um, scholarships that the kids could apply for in their major, um, scholarships the kids could apply for on merit base. So... We decided to just, especially with Wyatt, since he was our first, just throw the doors open. He could apply anywhere he wanted to, um, so long as it was a big range, so we could kind of get a feel for what the schools might be offering him. Mm-hmm. Got it. Okay. So um, did the results prove that, um, you know, those what you suspected in terms of, yes, there was a high price tag, but there might be more money there for us. Did that come to pass? Yes, it did. Um, Actually, there was a few private colleges in Oregon that Wyatt got some great offers from. The unfortunate part was it still couldn't balance out that out-of-state tuition cost, which turned out to be pretty enormous for us coming from California either to Oregon. He applied to Washington schools, Colorado schools, and even though, yes, they would give a substantial amount of money, our FAFSA didn't put us in a position where they could do anything more than merit-based pretty much for us, and so, you know, we weren't really able to take advantage of those in the long run. Got it. Okay. Well, let how when you got those decisions back and you were looking at them, you know, we've been doing a number of segments over the past couple of weeks. Um, and for our listeners, don't forget, the archives are a great place, a treasure trove of really good information. But one of the things we've been talking about is how you, um, you know, kind of compare costs and um, determine the bottom line. Are there any tools that you use that might be helpful for other parents to know about in that process of comparing costs and determining the bottom line? I would say the school websites, conversations with the schools themselves. Um, the visits were huge for me. I mean, I was vigorously taking notes at each college that we went to. Um, and then we have a wonderful friend, um, Beth Feinberg, who's in the um, you know, in the industry, and she kind of helped point us, too, to some, you know, helpful websites. It's really amazing what's out there online, so you can compare tuition versus housing versus, you know, transportation and books, and, I mean, every school seemed to really have it dialed in in terms of what, you know, their estimated costs were. Right. It's a shame that they don't all sort of present it in the exact same way, but... I would say the same about admissions. Wouldn't it be nice if everyone just had a standard way of presenting all of that? But they don't. So that that requires a lot of work on the parents' part to kind of figure that out. Um, when, When the decisions came back and you were looking and comparing, 
um, and realizing that in in many cases, unfortunately, he, he might be getting a really generous offer, but it still wasn't enough to make up for what you could pay if he stayed in state. Did you go back to any of the schools that admitted him and ask for more money? Yes, we did. We did call um, schools in Colorado and Oregon and basically just kind of plead our case. We're both teachers. We don't want to saddle our kids with huge amounts of debt. What else is out there? Um, And, you know, unfortunately, neither school that we approached um, was able to do any more. Like I said, they were very generous with their offers. Um, The Oregon school, I can't remember the exact numbers, but I want to say why I got something like $22,000 off the the amount to begin with, and so they were they were generous enough to where I think they felt like they couldn't give us anything else, and there was nothing else he really qualified for, so that's kind of where Got that it. ended. Got it. But I think it's a good point. You know, one of the things we do tell people is it never hurts to ask in your situation. Yeah. It didn't really help, but at the same time, neither or none of the schools that you asked said, no, we're not going to give you more, and we're offended you would ask, and we're going to rescind your son's acceptance, which is honestly what I think, you know, is that what people think? If you ask for more money, they're going to take it away? Um, yes, and just to be clear, that didn't happen, right? Not a bit. And actually, we got some amazing advice um, from Colorado State. The woman there sat with me for probably about a half an hour on the phone and just talked me through lots of information, um, other scholarships that why I could apply for. I mean, they really wanted him there very badly is how it came across to me, and she was trying to make, help me find any way to make that happen. So those conversations were priceless. Nice. That's wonderful to hear. And I think um, the more I can spread the word to people about, you know, don't be afraid to have these conversations. And I think in many cases, that's something that, um, and now the finance, if college finance people are listening and they're saying, well, no, I wouldn't put it that way exactly. But I do think that they enjoy helping families to figure it out if they can, um, because it is a tricky thing. Yeah, very much so. So, in terms of, you know, we talked a little bit about earlier, you mentioned, you know, who's going to pay for all of this. Were there expectations that you set for each of your children about what their role was going to be in paying for their college educations? Um, and if so, how did you kind of come up with those expectations and how did you share them with your kids? We decided pretty early on that the kids needed to have a big stake in paying for their own college, uh, a big big part of it. And coming up with the exact division was difficult because we were trying to figure out how much can we save and have we saved, like take this pool, and let's say we wanted to retire in 10 to 15 years, what could we really put aside without having to, you know, we, we made some decisions for ourselves. We weren't going to get out, take a second out on the house. We, mm-hmm. you know, we kind of laid some ground, groundwork for ourselves. Um, and then we started looking at prices, and we kind of came up with this, could it be as much as a 50-50 or a 40-60 split um, for what we would pay for and then what the kids would ultimately have to work for slash take out loans for? Got um, it. It and was not, it was, yeah, go ahead. No, 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 I, please keep going. It was very, very difficult decisions um, because even at a school, let's say, for example, $25,000 a year, which in California is is quite a bargain to find a school um, that you can get for that amount, 
Well, even that, that is $100,000 over the course of four years. And so a 40-60 split is still leaving the child with a $60,000, you know, amount of money they have to earn or take out in loans. Yeah. And when my husband and I first started talking about this, we were just sick at this. I mean, I, I wish we would have researched, you know, college prices so much earlier on in their education, and we probably would have done a few things differently. Um, but, you know, that's kind of what it came out to. It's looking a little bit more like a 50-50 split now, and we're just encouraging the kids like crazy. You have got to find the best bargain out there, apply for a ton of scholarships. We've now changed our FAFSA numbers to look a lot better. We made some changes this last year in, you know, various um, things. So we're just we're trying to be smarter about that, but it's it's very difficult to stare that amount of debt in the face. Yeah, absolutely. So if if I'm hearing you correctly, it sounds like your son's going to have about fifty thousand dollars in in debt when he graduates, or maybe not quite that much because he's able to earn some or get some scholarship money. Yeah, I think yeah. So fifty is the big number that he's looking at, but you know he really knows that he's going to work every summer. Um, he brought a bit of a nest egg from, you know, his savings through high school, which we encouraged him to have. Um, He's a super hard worker and pretty ingenuitive, so I think he's going to come up with some scholarships as well in his major. He's doing really well up there. So, you know, we're hoping he can bring it down inch by inch. He's also looking into creative housing next year um, to bring that amount down as well. So it'll be interesting to see how it all pans out. Yeah, and I, you know, I think it, it brings up something really interesting, which is the idea of your kids having skin in the game. And, I, you know, you do, you wonder, would he be so motivated to look for creative housing or to apply for all of these scholarships while he's also studying in school if it, it wasn't that that debt was going to be his versus be his parents? And I, I wouldn't think any less of him if he didn't work as hard, but I just think it would be hard to be that motivated if it wasn't on you. Yes, that was a huge factor when we decided that we wanted the kids to pay for some of their college education. We knew what that we both had, and we knew what that meant to, you know, finish our degrees with some amount of debt, but also just working incredibly hard for all those years. And we know that we knew we wanted them to have that same experience. Right, right. And so I'm curious if you did anything differently, and I think you alluded to a few things that you did differently with your daughter, and also if she did anything differently based on kind of the whole experience with your oldest son. That's a really interesting question. Um, I think she made some changes personally just watching Wyatt go through the entire process um, I think she's a little more active with scholarships than he was because now she sees him taking out loans and, you know, thinking, oh, my gosh, how can I get that? How can I not have to do that? How can I get that number down? Mm-hmm. Um, she she applied to fewer colleges, which I think helped her focus a little bit more on what she kind of, you know, really wanted to, where she wanted to kind of put her, her eggs um, so yeah, there have there definitely have been a few differences in that process. Got it. And are you have you gotten? It sounds like she's heard from five of her six choices. And have you gotten a better deal now that you're going to have two kids in college? Have you been happier with the um, packages that are coming back for her? We are much happier, I think, because the FAFSA 
is really reflecting the fact that we have two kids in college now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she applied to UC Davis, which is a meets needs school. And so, you know, they have put together a nice package for her. And she also, I think just due to just her sheer determination and writing those essays, just really seeking a lot of help on those essays. She got the Regent Scholarship, which, you know, we were just jumping up and down because that, you know, that knocked a chunk off of a UC school to make it more comparable to the um, the Cal States out here in California. So, so far, you know, things are, are shaping up better for her, I think, than they had for Wyatt. Um, so, once again, I think we'll just kind of see ultimately where she where she ends up. Got it, got it. But it does, it is interesting. Um, sometimes it's nice to be the firstborn, and sometimes you get a break by not being the firstborn, and it sounds that like that. That is very true. <laughs> that's, that's been helpful to her. Um, well, I'm just curious if there are any other tips that you think would be helpful to families who are going through this with, with their children. You know, you mentioned that there maybe were some things you would have done differently. Any advice that you want to leave our listeners with today? I think, gosh, there's so much, but I think one of the things we would have definitely done differently is start the money conversation much earlier um, and been saving possibly them and us more along the way. Um, And then also just not taking junior college off the table so quickly. I think we just thought, oh, great four-year college experience. You know, every child should have this, but we have some phenomenal junior colleges here yeah. that, you know, can get the kids almost guarantee with certain grades um, and in certain programs, get them into some really great programs at the UCs. And I think at some point they just stopped considering that and then it just became a fight to even consider it. Uh, so I right. would say definitely that. Um, we got some expert help with uh, our FAFSA and we also had our friend that I mentioned earlier, um, Beth Feinberg, helped us out a lot with um, showing why. What is it going to cost for you to pay back $60,000? What does that look like in a monthly budget? And I think that was really helpful for him because he started to see, oh, hey, wow, that's going to be $300 I have to pay first before I do anything else. What kind of money am I going to be making coming out of college? Um, so I think just talk to everybody you can get your hands on um, and try to get some good sound advice in terms of, you know, how to steer your kids and what to encourage them to do. Um, Those are some things that, you know, that I think I would suggest for sure. Got it. And I think that's great advice. And for our listeners, Beth Feinberg actually is one of my colleagues here at College Coach, and, um, you know, our finance educators are available to talk to you about these kinds of things. So um, we try to do as many segments as we can, but sometimes there isn't a substitute for the individual conversation about this is what this means if you're going to borrow $50,000 to your budget. So, Rita, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. It was my pleasure. Great. So um, when we come back, we're going to do part two of our series on asking for more money. So you don't want to miss that. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. 
If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to The Patricia Raskin Show on VoiceAmerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This is the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions with the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio, Patricia Raskin. So tune in and call in to The Patricia Raskin Show, Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, last week, we did a segment on asking for more money, and that was really on um, appealing a financial aid award. And this week, we're going to be talking about how to negotiate a better scholarship or merit-based offer. Um, we just You just heard my segment with Rita Boyd, and um, Rita, unfortunately, they did ask for more money and didn't get any. Um, but I'm excited to welcome Shannon Vasconcellos, to the show. She is my colleague and a former BU and Tufts financial aid officer. And she has some tips um, that might help those of you who are thinking about doing this. Hi, Shannon. Hi, Beth. How are you? I'm good, thanks. So as I was just saying, you know, Rita and I talked and they didn't have success with this last year, at least with their son. Um, But certainly that doesn't mean that it's not a worthwhile endeavor. And so I guess my first question for you is, how do you even start the process? How do you go about negotiating a scholarship offer? Yeah, and it's actually pretty simple, and I think more people don't do it because they just don't realize that you can. They never 
thought that it was a possibility. Really, all you need to do is send a quick email to the college, and it's usually the admissions office that you're dealing with. They're the ones that generally control the merit scholarship money. Um, so if you're getting some need-based aid, I would say it wouldn't hurt to hit the financial aid office with an email as well. But you basically want to convey the message that, you know, you'd really love to attend their college, and it's just the money that's holding you back. You've got this other great offer from this other school that's really hard to turn down. You know, is there anything else that they could do to make your attendance more feasible? Um, I think you could, it's good to attach offers that you have from other schools. Let them know that you're not bluffing. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have any new information to convey, like if you've won any new awards, you've got um, new test scores that, you know, that weren't included on your initial application, certainly pass that information along. And you, what you're basically doing is you just want to kind of raise the threat you know, in the nicest way possible uh-huh. that, you know, that you really want to attend their school, but because of the money, you might have to go elsewhere. And if they sweeten the deal, you know, that would ensure your enrollment. That's basically right. all you want to convey. Got it. And I think the two, a couple of key things there, you did say, you know, um, in the nicest way possible, the, the underlying message clearly is if you can't come up with more money, I can't attend, but you really, you know, I have heard stories of people literally threatening the admissions or financial aid officers. That's never a good idea. Not the best tactic, no. I'd say you want to, you know, follow the, the catch more flies with honey rule. You know, essentially, yes. if this, for this school to work with you and, and possibly give you more money, they have to be wanting to work with you for the next four years. So you don't want to come off as, you know, too pushy, too much of a pain in the neck. My, an old colleague of mine used to call um, a family like that an administratively expensive family. Uh-huh. <laughs> and maybe, right. maybe they, they don't want to encourage your enrollment. So exactly, be nice. You want to convey the message. You'd love to attend their school. It's just the money holding you back. You don't want to, to really straight out make a threat. Right, right. And you did mention that, you know, sort of letting the school know, hey, I have better offers elsewhere and attaching those offers what if you don't have better offers elsewhere? Is that you should, obviously you probably shouldn't say that because if you say that, then they may want to see those, right? Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. If you don't attach the offers up front, um, many schools will ask for them. Um, so you don't want to get caught in a lie. Certainly, um, even if you don't have a better scholarship offer necessarily, do you have the potential of attending maybe your in-state public university that's going to be much cheaper? You know, that can certainly be used as negotiating material as well. Got it. Okay. And you do mention shooting an email. So it sounds to me like you think the best place to negotiate is in writing rather than picking up the phone or doing it in person? I do think it's best to at least start the process in writing. I found that, you know, if you just call or maybe show up at a school, the person you're talking to initially probably doesn't have the power to change anything, certainly not right on the spot like that. Uh, And when you put somebody on the spot, oftentimes they can get defensive. They might try and just kind of shut shut you down right away. Um, Now, I have seen some families uh, negotiate in in person and and be very successful with it. Um, But I think it's the better strategy to lay out your argument in writing to start Send them an email or snail mail. Um, let it kind of get to the right person. Let that person act as your advocate rather than your adversary. 
Mm-hmm. And then what I would do after, you know, a week or two after sending the request in, then follow up with a phone call, you know, just, you know, start it out, hey, I sent this email in, did you get it? Are there any updates? Do you need any more information from me? That way, you know, you guarantee they can't stick you at the bottom of a pile somewhere and forget about you. You can put kind of a personal touch to it. Um, so I would start the process in writing, then follow up with a phone call. Got it. Okay. And if you do, if you are close enough that you are going to negotiate in person, you mm-hmm. make an appointment and exactly. you make it with the right person. So that exactly to your point, right. yes. you're talking to the right person. Okay. Um, my next question is really around, um, you know, do you have to be an academic superstar? Does your child have to be an academic superstar in order to negotiate? Or is this something that really anyone can do? Anyone can at least try. You know, I really honestly recommend that almost every family that I work with at least try to negotiate. There's really, as you talked about with your last guest, who at least gave it a shot, there's really no downside. You know, like you said, they're not going to rescind an admission. They're not going to take away money that they've already given you. Uh, Mm -hmm. The worst they'll do is say, nope, sorry, we've got no more money for you, in which case you tried, and it really didn't cost you anything to try. You know, maybe just, you know, maybe a half hour that it took you to, you know, draft the email, that's all it cost you. Um, So anyone should give it a shot. Realistically, you know, the college really needs to want you (laughs) for them to be willing to negotiate with you. And if you just barely got into the school, well, they probably are not going to care so much if you enroll, and they probably aren't going to offer you any more money. Um, so, you know, be realistic in your expectations. If they've given you a scholarship offer to start with, that's a good sign that they really do want you. They're trying to entice you to enroll with this initial scholarship that they offered you. So that's a good sign that they may be willing to increase their offer if they think another school is luring you away uh, with a better deal. If you haven't been offered a scholarship up front, you know, that may be a sign that maybe they don't care so much if you enroll, so maybe they're not going to be willing to work with you. But you just really never know uh, about any school's kind of particular situation in any given year. You know, maybe their numbers aren't where they need them to be in terms of their enrollment. You know, maybe they're not getting enough students depositing or maybe, you know, they're short on men or they're short on women this year or they're short on engineers or English majors or, you know, whoever they're looking for that particular year, maybe you fulfill that enrollment goal. So, you know, you just never know, so I think it's always worth a shot. I actually once worked with a family who tried to negotiate. Their initial request was denied. And, you know, they moved on, you know, put a deposit down at another school. They thought the case was closed. And then, like, a month or two later, when, you know, on the back end, I know clearly that the initial school had not met their enrollment targets. A month or two later, out of the blue, this family received a letter, you know, saying, hey, we reconsidered. Here's a few more thousand dollars. Uh-huh. So please consider enrolling at our school. So you just never know what any school is going through in a particular year. So it's always worth a shot. Right. And in that situation, they reached out directly to this family because they had asked for more money and they knew there was at least mm-hmm. some interest there. So Exactly. And, and this sounds, this seems a little redundant, but I'm going to ask it anyway. <laughs> Is there ever a situation in which you would say, don't try to negotiate? There's actually one. <laughs> there is only one. And that is when you apply to a college through their early decision process. 
Um, and for any folks out there listening who don't know, that's the process where you make a binding commitment to the school when you apply. You essentially sign a contract saying, if you accept me, I will enroll. I'm going to withdraw any applications that I might have out there to other schools. If you accept me, I'm coming. Um, when you make that commitment, you really lose your ability to compare offers from other schools and to negotiate. Um, that's really the one time I heard of something bad coming from negotiation was um, when a student was accepted early decision to one school, and then she went back to them with an offer that she later received from another college and asked them to match that offer. Uh, and they said to her, not only are we not going to match it, but you were supposed to withdraw applications that you had elsewhere. You clearly didn't. You broke your early decision contract, so we are rescinding your admission. Um, oh, and by the way, we called the other school that you got that nice scholarship from, and guess what? They're rescinding their admission, too. Yep, <laughs> So yep. that is the only time I've heard of anything bad coming from um, trying to negotiate. If you apply early decision, you've really committed to that school. You can't mess around with negotiation. Um, so right. that is a, a major downside of applying early decision. I'm sure you've talked about it in other segments that, you know, it can be good to apply early decision. It can be uh, sometimes easier to get into a school, but you are really giving up some opportunities on the financial end. So you do have to think carefully before you make that commitment. That's exactly right. And you shouldn't make that commitment if finances are at all a concern. Um, mm -hmm. So, and a, a scary story, but hopefully one that people will take to heart. Uh, <laughs> okay, so, um, you know, we kind of have talked about this a little bit, but, but I mean, do you have, a, can you ballpark the likelihood that a student will be successful in negotiating more money, or is it really just kind of impossible to say, unless you know the school and the student and all of that stuff? Yeah, you, you never know for any particular student at any particular school. You just don't know. Um, there really are good, no good kind of numbers out there in terms of averages, you know, how, how many people are successful. I can tell you that we've done kind of an informal survey of the families that we've worked with at College Coach over the past couple years uh, uh, about asking for more money. Uh, and we've found that about half of the families that we've worked with in terms of asking schools for more money, either based on special financial circumstances or a straight negotiation based on a better offer, about half of the people get more money from at least one school. Um, huh? So, you know, it's, it's certainly not a slam dunk. You know, there are some schools that just have a policy. They don't negotiate. Um, but, I, it's, again, it's always worth a shot. You've got maybe a 50-50 chance. So those are decent odds. And, and, again, no real reason not to give it a try. I would even say 10% chance is decent odds if it means you exactly. might get more money, right? So. Right. You've got a 100% chance of getting no more money if you don't ask. So right. always worth a shot. And you can negotiate with both public and private, right? Yes. I would say it's always worth a shot at both public and private schools. I've seen that kind of on average people tend to have better luck at private schools uh, I, I'd say the private colleges just tend to have more discretion in the process. They have more money to play with to begin with. Um, at public colleges, I'd say more often than privates, they sometimes just have kind of a direct formula determining, you know, who gets what scholarship. You know, this class rank or this SAT score equates to this scholarship level, and then a high, slightly higher score gets you into the next level scholarship, and they don't stray much from that. Um, that's often the case at public schools. 
Um, but though that's actually something to look out for, if, if a school does publish on its website kind of this um, test score gets you the scholarship, if you're very close to that uh, or, or you're very close to the next level, you know, a few points short from the next level, maybe that's incentive to, you know, take your SATs or ACTs again if it might bump you up into the next level and then that's new information that you'd want to share with the school. Um, so, you know, that's sometimes the case with the public schools that they're just kind of formulaic about who gets the scholarships. There may not be much wiggle room, but it's certainly not always the case. I've seen people successfully negotiate with public schools a lot of times. I just say it's just rarer than with a private school. So, again, always worth a shot. Just you may want to kind of temper your expectations a bit if it's with a public school. All right, got it. So very quickly, because I, there, we have some other questions I really want to get to, but um, I did want to throw out, because you and I were talking about it during the break, you can negotiate with Ivy League and highly selective schools, but in general, in those schools, it's not merit-based scholarships you're looking at. It's a financial aid offer. And really, um, they are willing often to come into line with a school that they consider a peer institution, um, but generally speaking, not many schools are going to fit the bill of what they consider a peer institution. So it can be yep. worth it, but if you know you have an offer from your state school that's really spectacular with a great scholarship, the chances are pretty good that your whatever highly selective Ivy League school you may have gotten into is not really going to be willing to budge off of their offer based on that. Exactly right. Um, really quickly, uh, we really have time for about one, maybe two more questions, but probably one. What about, is there anything that parents can do early on in the process, especially for those who have younger students, to put themselves in the best position to negotiate a higher offer come senior year? Yeah, so I think the list of colleges that you apply to is absolutely crucial to uh, ultimately, if you're if you're going to get scholarship offers and if you're going to be able to negotiate them, you know, in order to negotiate, you really have to have negotiating material. You need to apply to colleges where you are likely to be offered scholarships. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in order to maximize those chances, you want to apply to schools where you're going to stand out. You know, schools where you'll stand out academically. You know, where your grades, your test scores are above average. You know, don't just apply to the same schools that you know, three-quarters of your high school class is applying to, you know, think about some less well-known schools, maybe some smaller schools, schools uh, maybe out of your geographic area. You know, those colleges are going to have to work harder to recruit you. They know that. They'll likely use some money to do it. So, you know, colleges where you stand out academically or otherwise, they're really going to want you. They're going to throw money at you. Um, They're going to offer you the scholarships that you can use with other schools to try and get more out of them. So, you know, don't just apply to schools where, you know, everyone applying looks just like you or, you know, mm-hmm. God forbid, looks better than you. <laughs> you know, if you yep. only apply to schools that are going to be a stretch for you to even get into, you know, those colleges aren't going to care so much if you enroll um, and they're going to have very little incentive to try to recruit you with scholarship funding. And now you've got no negotiating material to use with other schools. So, you know, that's my biggest tip for, for parents of younger students who haven't decided yet where they're applying consider your college list carefully, be open to schools that you might not have initially thought of, uh, and definitely make sure that it includes at least a couple colleges where you're going to stand out and you're likely to be recruited with some scholarship funding. Okay, well, that's awesome advice, and I hope that listeners take that to heart because 
Um, really the key from everything we've talked about today, the key to being able to negotiate is generally having other offers to negotiate with. Um, Shannon, thanks so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thank you, Beth. Uh, absolutely. So up next, we're going to be answering uh, listener college admissions questions. So don't go away. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. You count. Tune into Interrevolutionary Radio and join the spontaneous wave of people all over the planet who, like you, are changing our world from the inside out. Follow the movement. Meet guests who are shaking things up. Call in and gain insights and courage to empower your own voice. Large or small, your part counts. So join us. Co-hosted by Beth Green and James Maynard, Interrevolutionary Radio airs live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvind Vora weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Getting In a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, everybody. Um, Welcome back. I am excited to do our monthly uh, segment, Answering Your Questions. First of all, I want to thank you all for sending questions in. 
if we don't answer the question specifically on air, um, we are often taking them and using them as ideas for future segments. So, you know, keep your eyes and ears open and we may actually be answering them in a roundabout way or um, in future segments. So we appreciate them for that, but we have some very specific ones to answer today. And I'm excited to welcome my colleague, Erica Braley, who is going to read them to me. She collects them all and she's ready to throw them at me. I am. We have a very good list. Uh, So let's jump right in. All right. Um, The first question comes from uh, listener June. And June asks, many sources say that the essay portion of the SAT is not required nor recommended, Cornell being one of them. Do you have an opinion on this? Um. Do I have an opinion? I I don't know that my opinion necessarily matters here. I guess what I would say is that uh, this points up a really important part of the college process, which is that policies are going to vary from school to school. And um, it is true that there are a number of schools who have basically said that they're not going to require the optional writing section of the SAT or the optional writing section of the ACT. What's interesting about that is that some of the schools who have said that they're no longer going to require it have in the past required the optional writing section of the ACT, but now that the SAT writing section is optional, they're basically saying, well, now since both tests are making the writing section optional, we aren't going to require you to do either one. Um, The problem is that not all schools agree on this, and different schools have different policies, So you could put yourself or your child could put him or herself into a bad place if they opt not to do the writing section and then decide that they want to apply to a college that does want the student to take the writing section. So there's nothing worse than needing something and not having it. Um, And it's really no big deal to have something and not need it, right? So my advice for students who are going to be shooting for uh, some of the more selective schools uh, would be to take the writing section. And even if your child isn't shooting for some of the more selective schools, or even if you as the student are not, um, unless you are absolutely sure that all of the schools that you are going to apply to are not going to require the writing section, um, I really don't, I would really take it because, again, if they don't require it or want it, they're going to ignore it. If they want it and you don't have it, they're not going to ignore that. So my advice really here is unless there's a, there are some extenuating circumstances or reasons why you wouldn't take the writing section, I really do think it's a good idea to do it. Great. Next question comes from Jan, and she wants to know, can a relatively low test score make or break admissions at Ivy League or top schools? Um, The short answer there is sure. Um, You don't get into one of those very, very selective institutions just because you have really high test scores, but you certainly can be a less than um, competitive applicant if the student doesn't have really high test scores. So I think we need to talk about what do you mean by relatively low. I would say that a baseline threshold, and we're really talking baseline for, for most students at those highly selective schools, is a minimum of a 700 in each section of the SAT and on a couple of subject tests. 
or on the ACT, probably a minimum score of about a 32 or a 33. But the problem is that there are going to be so many students who are going to meet and exceed those minimums that really, for the average student, they're going to really need those scores to be significantly higher, more like in the mid-700s or higher on the SAT or somewhere like 34, 35 on the ACT. Um, Certainly, there are students who get in with lower scores. They typically have something else significant that is helping them stand out in another way. Maybe they are good enough to start on the football uh, team as a freshman. Maybe they represent um, a really underrepresented constituent on campus. Um, Maybe there are some extenuating circumstances, but uh, that's going to be pretty rare. And so, again, I would say that the short answer is, yeah, it could. Um, The long answer is, Yeah, there's a little bit of wiggle room, but not a lot. Great. Um, The next question comes from Cynthia, and it's a two-parter. The first part is um, my uh, my daughter just finished her sophomore year. She took a practice ACT and SAT to see which she was stronger in, and she scored much better on the ACT, so she will focus on that. Her plan is to study a lot over the summer and take it in the fall. If she does well in the fall, do you recommend she take it a second time in the spring just to see how she does? Do colleges like to see more than one attempt? The second part of this question is her high school administers the SAT on campus in the spring of junior year to all students. Is it okay if she takes this without preparation and just not plan on sending the score to any colleges? Okay, well, the first part of the question, um, I love the fact that she did a practice ACT and SAT. I really strongly recommend that all students do that just to figure out which is a better test. And in her situation, which doesn't always happen, but she clearly was better on the ACT, so she's focusing on that. Um, If she does well on it the first time she takes it, then she's done. There's really no need to take it a second time. Uh, colleges don't give you extra points for taking it a second time. In fact, they would probably, you know, love it if she just took it once because it would mean she was probably giving it the proper attention that it needed. If she feels like she took it and she didn't do as well as she had hoped, even though her score was good, or if she's shooting for uh, some pretty selective schools where maybe her score is good but not outstanding, Those are reasons why you might take it a second time. Maybe if you're applying to a school with merit scholarships and they lay out kind of a score range to get one of those scholarships and her score is on the low end of that range or slightly below that range, that might be a reason to take it. But I wouldn't take it just because you think colleges want to see her take it a second time uh, because they don't. They don't care if you take it a second time, but there certainly are no points awarded for taking it a second time. So um, I would say if there is room for improvement and she wants to improve and there are reasons to shoot for a better score, that would be a reason to retake, but otherwise I wouldn't. Uh, The other one is a trickier question. Um, So these days there are some high schools that administer the SAT as part of state-mandated graduation requirements. Um, And that would be a situation where, you know, they're going to require all the students to take the SAT. Um, What is a little less, uh, I'm not 
quite sure on is what really ends up happening with those SAT scores. So in some cases, I think they don't end up on the student's official testing record. And in that case, you know, I would say no. So let me back up a little bit. You choose which scores you send to the colleges. That said, if a college wants to see all scores, um, the downside to not following that policy is that if they find out, that could be a lot of trouble. And I don't see an issue if she doesn't do that well on the SAT, but she's doing very well on the ACT, the colleges are going to consider the ACT. They're not going to consider that low score on the SAT. So I would say it, it's, a, it's, it's likely that she could just take it and not ever have to report the score if the schools she's applying to don't require her to report all scores. But if they do require her to report, report all scores, then I would submit that SAT and not worry about it. I don't think she needs to do any prep for it. Great. The next question comes from Kelly, and she says, We live in Florida, but my daughter attends an all-girls boarding school in Massachusetts. If she decided on a college in Massachusetts, could she be considered for in-state tuition? Um, in general, I'm not the expert on this, but I will say that in general, attending boarding school in a state is usually not enough to establish residency. So I'm going to tell you that my gut says no, she probably will not qualify for in-state tuition at a Massachusetts state school just by virtue of attending boarding school there. But I am going to send you to the school's websites, the college's websites, and they will generally lay out for you, all state schools will lay out for you what constitutes in-state for them and how you establish that residency. So it's possible that maybe after she graduates from high school, if she spends a couple of years living and working in Massachusetts before she goes on to college, then she might qualify for in-state tuition. Um, it's possible that they do have special provisions for her based on the fact that she's in boarding school. I doubt it, but the school's websites are really going to be the best place to find that information out. Great. Um, our next question is from Dawn. She asks, how much is character and community service hours taken into effect as part of the acceptance process? Is there a magic number of service hours that colleges look at to put you over the top? Um, so the answer is no. Uh, there isn't a magic number. And I really, really strongly encourage students and families not to be focused on hours of community service. And really, community service in general is a nice thing, but it isn't a required thing. Certainly, there are schools where there is a focus on community service, and therefore, they like to see students exhibiting a commitment to that um, when they're already in high school. But, um, you know, so it's really less about doing a certain number of hours it's really more about having interests outside of the classroom and finding different ways to explore those interests. Um, character is a, is a tough one. Um, certainly, you want to be admitting good students who are also good people. And so from that perspective, I do think that at schools where they are considering more than just grades and test scores, the character piece does come into play. And you look for students who will be good roommates, who will be good students you know, sort of fellow students in the classroom. And you look at letters of recommendation as a place to kind of find out a little bit more about someone's character. You can also look in the way that they express themselves in their essays. 
um, and things like that. Or maybe if there is an interview process as part of the school's admissions um, qualifications, that's another place where perhaps you might get a sense, a slight sense of someone's character. Um, so they do count a little bit. And, um, and again, there is no magic number. Uh, that, that's all the time we have for questions right now, but a couple of quick things I did want to say. We did have some questions about how you choose between um, different options and also negotiating a Hyatt Merit Aid package. We talked about that earlier in the show, um, and we are going to be talking about how you go about choosing between the options you have in some shows we're doing in April. And then we also had a question about turning the tide, which we actually talked about in last week's show, and we're doing another segment in this coming week's show, so next Thursday's show. We're going to be talking a little bit more about turning the tide and what that really means for students and parents and expectations. Um, and so very quickly, I do want to thank Erica. Thank you so much for being here and, and uh, sharing those questions with us. Um, of course. For, thank you for having me. Absolutely. And thanks to all my other guests. A couple of things. You do want to go to the archives. There's great stuff there. You can get free downloads of the show on iTunes. Um, if you can rate us while you're there, that would be even better. Um, next week, as I said, we're going to be talking about turning the tide. My colleague Ian is going to be hosting. I will be a guest, which is kind of fun. Um, we're also going to be talking about students and taxes, um, common questions related to college students and taxes. Um, if you have questions for us, send them in, gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. And we're here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thank you.